Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 3, Episode 16, Chloe Cooley and Slavery in Canada. While it would not be surprising that many people have never heard of Chloe Cooley, it is surprising how many people are entirely unfamiliar with the simple fact that Canada did indeed utilize slave labor. Thus, the story of the slave Chloe Cooley and the story of slavery in Canada are intricately intertwined. This week's book recommendation is the incredible The Hanging of Angelique, The Untold Story of Canadian Slavery and the Burning of Old Montreal. This is a harrowing and disturbing tale of slavery in Canada told through the narrative of one slave's life and death while intersecting with a major event in the history of Montreal. The book was written by the fantastic historian Afua Cooper and published by HarperCollins in 2006. I strongly suggest you check it out. Okay, so... Unbeknownst to many Canadians, slavery did indeed exist in Canada. Uh, Various Indigenous groups in modern-day Central and Eastern Canada had slaves that were made up of other Indigenous groups. These were men and women bought, traded for, and captured in war. The first Europeans to arrive and settle along the St. Lawrence River in the early 17th century also had slaves. In fact, most of the slaves that were owned by these early European arrivals were Indigenous. These slaves were acquired via trade and sale between Europeans and local Wendat, Iroquois, and other First Nations that lived in the same area. Many of these indigenous slaves in the early 17th century period were actually from the central United States, Pawnee, Oto, Kansas, and other groups inhabiting what is now the modern-day states of Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Kansas. These were acquired through war and then trading, This gives us some sense of the vast trade networks that existed before Europeans had even arrived. Slaves captured in indigenous wars in these regions were transported all the way north to the St. Lawrence River Valley. However, shortly after Europeans began to settle, slaves of African descent began to be imported in greater and greater numbers. Most black African slaves were the property of French elites in the region. 
The earliest records of an African slave being owned in New France was in 1629, that being a young boy brought by the infamous Kirk brothers. These were Scottish privateers who that very same year captured Quebec from Champlain and are certainly worth a cool Canadian history episode of their own. This boy, eventually baptized Olivier Lejeune, was sold to a local French clerk. In 1689, King Louis XIV formally authorized the importation of slaves from Africa and the Caribbean. Many in New France and back in Paris believed this source of cheap labor was crucial for the fledgling colony's economic survival. In 1709, the intendant of New France, a man named Jacques Rodot, enacted the first official legislation within New France towards slavery. This was titled, The Ordinance Rendered on the Subject of the Negroes and the Indians called Panis. Panis, by the way, was a French word referring to indigenous slaves and servants. A further legislation followed in the 1720s and 1740s. All of these pieces of legislation and those emanating from Paris were often referred to as the Code Noir, essentially a set of rules and regulations governing slaves and slave owners. Interestingly, while slaves were no doubt subject to the whims of their masters, part of this Code Noir actually put in place some very limited protections for slaves. For instance, a New France slave owner could not kill his slave without permission from the local political authority. This was little comfort to any enslaved man or woman. It should be pointed out here, and this is pretty important, that it is a fairly common misconception for many Canadians and people who study Canadian history to not only think slavery didn't exist here, but that whatever slavery did exist was much more humane than that in the United States. And it is worth pointing out that this position is entirely fallible when considering that slavery in the Canadas, like the USA, relied on the simple assumption that slaves were less than human. They were property, chattel, and owners could do with them as they please. There are records in Canada of slaves being sold and separated from their families, beaten, tortured, jailed, whipped, and raped, as well as murdered. Statistics are difficult to tally from the period of French rule, but it is estimated that the largest number of slaves owned in New France at any one time was somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000. While of these, roughly 60% were indigenous, 35% of African descent, and the rest a smattering of people from other countries and territories. Now, what is really fascinating is that when the British finally conquered New France during the Seven Years' War, so from 1757 to 1763, they purposefully left slavery in place. You see, the new British masters sought to cozy up to the French and French-Canadian elites. By the way, this is a great time to identify the use of the term French and Canadian. If one identified as French while living in the Canadas, as New France was often called, they probably had only recently arrived directly from France itself, or were maybe part of the colony's nobility who refused to lose their ties to the old country. If one identified as Canadian, or was assumed to be Canadian, it generally referred to the non-noble class of French-speaking Catholic settlers 
who had already lived in the colony for two generations or more. By the time the British took over, the majority of people living in New France identified as Canadian, while a small elite still identified as French. Okay, so pardon that tangent, back to the show. So, the British, being English-speaking, Protestant, and now a ruling minority, sought to co-opt the French and French-Canadian elites whom they saw as instrumental partners in keeping control of a colony that was almost entirely made up of Catholic and French-speaking people. Thus, allowing the elites to keep their slaves was a step in the direction of getting the loyalty of said elites. Now, barely over a decade after the British took control of New France, they lost all 13 of their Atlantic colonies to the Americans during what, of course, is the American Revolution or the War of Independence. Shortly after the end of this war, that is in 1783, the British sought to encourage white settlers in this new United States of America to come to what was now being called British North America, basically modern-day Central and Eastern Canada. And they did this by ensuring that any slave owner coming to British North America could keep all of his slaves and his property without any taxation on his person. It is thought another 3,000 black slaves came to British North America this way. It should be pointed out that in 1772, slavery was made illegal in England itself while still being legal throughout the empire. Okay, so by the end of the 18th century, there are thousands of slaves in British North America. Most of them are by now of African descent, as the number of indigenous slaves had dwindled continually over the years due to disease and depopulation. Evidence shows slaves in every corner of British North America, from Newfoundland to Prince Edward Island to New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, the colony of Upper Canada, that's modern-day southern Ontario, and of course, Lower Canada, the original New France and modern-day southern Quebec. Now, just before we continue, I want to remind everyone listening that you can find us on all of your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, Patreon, Instagram, and at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you go to our homepage and if you go to our Facebook page, you will see links to PayPal and Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. We survive solely on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. I want to thank everyone that's donated recently, and we hope you continue to support this program. Now on with the show. So at this point, let me introduce the legend herself, Chloe Cooley. Chloe was a black woman who was taken as a slave by a sergeant named Adam Vrooman. Vrooman had fought on the side of the British during the Revolutionary War, and afterwards, as he was still a die-hard British loyalist, made his way to Upper Canada and settled in the town of Queenston along the Niagara River. This is the same Queenston that will be the site of the Battle of Queenston Heights during the War of 1812. Now sometime in mid-March 1793, Vrooman decided he was going to sell Chloe. There were buyers across the Niagara River, which was American soil, in fact part of New York State. Now here's the question. 
why wouldn't Vrooman try to find a buyer on the Canadian side? Well, the answer is that all throughout the colony of Upper Canada, the abolitionist movement had been gaining widespread popular support, that being, of course, the abolition of slavery. Vrooman wanted to sell his slave and earn some money before he was going to be forced to set her free. So, Vrooman attempted to get Chloe across the river. Chloe, however, resisted. She fought, scraped, bit, and scrapped until Vrooman needed two more men to help tie her up. Her cries for help were heard by a man named Peter Martin. Peter was a black man who had fought in the Revolutionary War. In fact, had fought in a unit known as Butler's Rangers, the very same unit as Vrooman himself. They were fellow veterans. Peter Martin objected to Vrooman's handling of Chloe, and along with another white witness, reported the incident directly to the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, a man named John Graves Simcoe. Now let's just pause here at how fascinating a moment this is. An enslaved black woman is being transported across the border, and this action is reported by a free black man who is a British veteran of the Revolutionary War and is able to report this incident directly to the top political figure in the colony. These were strange times indeed. When Simcoe further investigated the matter, it was discovered, in fact, that many slave owners were doing the very same thing as Vrooman, forcing their slaves across the river onto American soil to be sold. This tells us two things. Number one, slavery certainly continued to exist in Upper Canada at this time, but secondly, that there was enough talk about abolition to scare these Canadian slave owners into getting their slaves onto American soil and selling them. For Simcoe, the Chloe Cooley incident was going to be the catalyst for him to introduce a bill into the Upper Canadian Legislature to abolish slavery in the colony. The problem was, nearly half of that assembly which had to pass the bill were slave owners themselves. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thus, Simcoe struggled to get the bill passed and in the end was forced to compromise. In June, later that year, so 1793, legislation was passed banning any more importation of slaves into the colony. This was known as the Act to Limit Slavery. But it should be made clear that it also stated that any current slaves in the colony were to remain in bondage. Any children born to a slave after 1793 were to be freed at the age of 25. Thus, the 1793 Act to Limit Slavery was the only act in all the British Empire passed by a colony to limit slavery in any way. The problem, of course, was that this did nothing to prevent the sale of slaves across the border. 
What is fascinating is that during this period, many slaves in Upper Canada sought freedom by escaping to the numerous free states in the U.S., like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, where slavery was completely abolished. Let's pause on this for a moment. What we're saying here is years before runaway slaves in the U.S. sought freedom in Canada, runaway slaves from Canada were seeking freedom in the northern United States. Now, here's where it gets even weirder. Part of the Act to Limit Slavery also said that no new slaves could be introduced into Upper Canada, which meant a runaway slave from a slaveholding state in the U.S. could find freedom in Upper Canada. So slaves from Upper Canada were fleeing to U.S. states that had abolished slavery, while at the very same time, slaves from U.S. states that still held on to slavery were running to freedom in Upper Canada. Imagine Upper Canada at this time. There were slaves in bondage, free blacks, and recently freed runaway American slaves all intermingling in the colony going one way or the other. This confusion merely reinforced the need to outright abolish the institution of slavery. Eventually, the abolitionist movement would win out, and in 1833, the British government officially abolished slavery in the empire. Very soon after, the Royal Navy itself was patrolling the coasts of Africa, carrying out anti-slavery naval operations, while in Canada and the rest of British North America, thousands of slaves suddenly found themselves free. So what happened to Chloe, you ask? Well, sadly, Chloe Cooley never returned to Upper Canada. Vrooman was successful in selling her to an American buyer, and she disappeared deep into that American institution that would hold on for nearly another 50 years and serve to rip the United States apart. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. And of course, you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.